Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. It is our custom here to express our reverence for God's written word by standing as his word is read before it is proclaimed by the servant sent to do so. Title of the sermon this morning is Finish the Mission. We'll begin our reading at Nehemiah 6, verse 15. Scripture elsewhere reminds us the grass outside will wither as it is. Flowers will fade away as they are, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So we strive as God's people to hear and to heed it faithfully together. Let's do that now. Nehemiah 6.15 So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehonanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a good thing for us to be mindful of our weakness in that in many ways. Because upon the stage of our weakness, you always show your strength, your power, and your glory. And so we pray now that the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit that has inspired and preserved the word of God to this very day, that the Holy Spirit now would work faith in our hearts, that finding joy and peace and believing together as the people of God, help us, we pray, to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Many of you have heard the phrase that Rome was not built in a day. That comes from an 11th century French proverb making the suggestion that important things cannot be done in a hurry. Many of us know the reality that if we want things to be done well, often they are to be done slowly. And in a certain sense, that becomes the case with the kingdom of God and the slow progress of the people of God. Today, we see slow progress being made in Nehemiah chapter 6, moving into chapter 7, where there is progress, but it has been slow going. But where you see the people of God making progress, uh, you also see challenges coming along the way, which draws our attention to this great hope that we have. This God himself who is in the midst of our work, and it is God himself who will enable us to finish the mission. 
If you are using your outline, we'll uh, use that as a guide, uh, taking us through our text along the lines of those three points. The first of which focuses our attention on God's enabling grace. Once more, we get a date in Nehemiah at the beginning of this section. We get another little uh, pencil note from Nehemiah telling us that not only is he a man of detail that pays attention to all the little things, but also wanting us to know precisely when it was that the wall was completed. This would be important for Israel to remember, but it also punctuates how quickly, in many ways, the work has been done on the one hand and how slowly it has been accomplished on the other. This is the 25th day of Elul, what translates to roughly October 445 B.C. I know it's very important to you. Progress has been made in what appears to be about the span of six months, but quite notably, and this gets to the real substance of the text in this point, the progress that has been made has not only been slow going, it's progress made against all odds. In many ways, it becomes a quick illustration of the Christian life and the advance of the kingdom of God. Progress is made by the grace of God, progress not simply in the Christian life, progress in the kingdom of God, but that progress occurs in the context of adversity. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 6, already about the midway of the book, uh, we can look back and see that there has been internal strife and external opposition. Internal strife, if you remember back from chapter 5, where the rich were taking advantage of the poor, uh, where the people of God were divided into basically two classes, the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, and the haves were taking advantage of the have-nots. And that created strife and turmoil for the people, and therefore strife and turmoil for Nehemiah. On the other hand, not only is there trouble within, there's trouble from without. And these three names that kind of won't go away, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, have been standing firmly against Nehemiah and progress in building the wall. So as with the Christian life, so also with the kingdom of God, and even here in Nehemiah, progress occurs against all odds. But we should not lose sight of the fact that what Nehemiah is being displayed as, before our eyes in a certain sense, is a man who has exemplified fantastic leadership qualities. Nehemiah is, as we titled the sermon last week, a man that exhibits grace under pressure. To give him a couple other nicknames, he is a man of all seasons, a man who remains steadfast in and out of season, a man who does not easily give up, who does not tire out or quit. Uh, By God's grace, you might even compare Nehemiah, I'm not sure if this is flattering or not, to an all-weather tire (laughs) who can handle all sorts of conditions and yet not lose his grip. And when you think about it, already by the time you get to chapter 7, Nehemiah has been given many reasons to quit, many reasons to give up, many reasons to be discouraged, many reasons to not finish the mission, and given that this is only the halfway point of the book, many more trials and temptations are yet to come. But Nehemiah does not quit. Nehemiah, uh, this somewhat tireless leader, does not give up. He continues to endure. He sticks to the mission, and it raises a very important question, how? How is it that Nehemiah has not given up? Translate it, make it more personal. How is it that the people of God don't give up when progress is slow going, when adversity is obviously all around, when there are trials and temptations from within, 
adversity and opposition from without? How is it that the people of God continue to exhibit grace under pressure? The answer is very clearly, it's not because Nehemiah is all that. That's not the point. Nehemiah may, on the one hand, being held up as a great example of godly leadership, a all-weather tire of sorts, Uh, But the reason that Nehemiah is able to persevere under pressure is because of the grace of God at work in Nehemiah. That really is the point. In fact, it's the point of the book. The point of the book is not to hold up Nehemiah as some model of leadership. You can draw that out, but it's uh, it's not the crescendo. The book of Nehemiah paints Nehemiah well, but it paints God much better. Nehemiah is good, if you want to say it like that. Uh, But he's good as sinners go. But God is much greater. Nehemiah is strong as weak men go. But God is much, much stronger. Who is the hero of the book of Nehemiah? It is not Nehemiah himself. It is God. God is the hero of the story. And that comes through loudly and clearly even here in our section if you look carefully at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Therein lies the secret to Nehemiah's strength. Therein lies the secret to the strength of the people of God. Why the progress line of history never stops but continues to move forward in the face of internal strife and external opposition. God is the hero of the story, not Nehemiah. When the wall is completed, notice even the surrounding nations take pause for a moment and look. And what they do not celebrate is Nehemiah. What the people do not celebrate is Nehemiah. What Nehemiah does not celebrate is Nehemiah. Rather, it is God who is celebrated. When the wall is completed, the nations take note. This is a big deal. This language is important. In the last chapter, the language of the nations was uh, given to us there, and ironically, providentially, in uh, the last chapter is the nations there that are trying to make Nehemiah and the Israelites afraid. Here you see the exact opposite, if you will, a providential reversal. No longer now are the nations in the posture of trying to make Israel afraid. Now the nations are afraid because the people of God are advancing. This is very often the way that it works. The world seeks to discourage, undo, intimidate, stall the church. But by the grace of God, the kingdom of God continues to advance. The people of God continue to advance And the nations take note. It actually bothers non-Christians when Christians do well. It actually bothers non-Christians when they see the church prospering. It actually bothers non-Christians when non-Christians become Christians. Many of us even remember uh, those particular details from our own life stories. These very same people, whose names reemerge here, uh, in the last chapter, remember the ploy of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, that unholy trinity as we dubbed them, and remember what their ministry was. It was a ministry of intimidation, a ministry of discrediting, and a ministry of temptation. Those are the three things that they sought to do, to intimidate Nehemiah, and if that doesn't work, to discredit Nehemiah, and if that doesn't work, to tempt Nehemiah. 
They wanted Nehemiah and a small band of faithful, God-fearing servants to become afraid of them instead. But what God has done is reverse that. When the wall is completed, then the nations who hear of it are afraid. They were unsuccessful in their mission. As the Psalms even use this language, uh, their taunts were turned back on their own heads. Now it is the nation's who take note and are afraid. And in many ways, uh, this is a lesson we see illustrated all over Christian history. Even if you go back to earlier scenes in the Bible, this very same dynamic has occurred. When Pharaoh and the Egyptians attempted to intimidate Moses and Israel, what did God do? He turned it around, and their story ends with them being afraid. When the nations in the land tried to intimidate Joshua and this small band of Israelites, what did God do? He turned it around, and their victories made the nations afraid. When the enemies of King David taunted him and also tried to make David the king afraid, what did God do? Well, as we read earlier from Psalm 16, God not only preserved his righteous one, but he turned it around, and David's enemies become afraid. Christians are not always on the winning side for the moment. There's a great lesson there. Christians are not always on the winning side for the moment. But time has a way, God has a way of turning things around and upside down. And sometimes he does that very quickly. Sometimes he does it very slowly. But he promises in his word that ultimately his kingdom, his church, his people will prevail. One of the great frustrations that you might sense as you move through the book of Nehemiah slowly with your pastor is also the great frustration of the Christian life, which is learning to wait. To wait for progress in us, to wait for the defeat of our enemies, to wait and see what my God will do. And this is why we are greeted by this uh, occasional refrain in the book of Nehemiah uh, that comes back to the fore here. The good hand of God was upon us. How did Nehemiah finish the wall? How did the Israelites finish the wall? How did they get on the other side of internal strife? How did they resist external opposition? It's because the good hand of our God was upon us. That was true for Nehemiah. It was true for Israel, and it's true for you, beloved. The good hand of our God is upon us. Nehemiah and the nations around him saw that it was God who ultimately was fighting, that it was God who ultimately was about the work of building the wall. And when you, when you pause and think about it, it's a lovely illustration. God has a plan that is bigger than his people. And God has a plan that includes the work of his people. And part of God's plan not only oversees all the details of the work, but even the providential movements of those who oppose the work of God. God works through means, and the means that he often works through are his people. So you might say it this way, the whole time that Nehemiah is there building the wall, and if you remember uh, going back a couple chapters, there's this lovely scene where you have whole families uh, describing even daughters working alongside their fathers, building the wall uh, with, with every little piece, every little detail of brick and mortar. Behind every little brick stood a great big God bringing all of his work to completion. J.I. Packer has a great line. I've been thinking about it for days. I hope it gets stuck in your mind, kind of wedged in somewhere uh, the very same way. Uh, Regarding the small details and the light of the big picture, this is Packer's line, everything is providence. 
Everything is providence. There is no detail that God misses. There is no breath taken that God skips. There is no brick in the wall that was not there because of the intimate detail of God's design, the overseeing care of his shepherding ministry. The punctuated celebration that may come when the whole wall is done should not overlook the fact that every little brick stuck in place uh, by Nehemiah and the men of Israel or fathers standing alongside their daughters working in the late afternoon sun, every detail is part of the plan of God. Everything was providence. And that's not simply true of a wall. In Nehemiah chapter 6, it's the life story of the people of God. Every detail is important and everything is providence. But in God's providence, finishing the wall does not finish the book or even the story, nor does it finish the mission of the people of God. This takes us to our next point, a thorn in Nehemiah's side. Everything is providence, but not all providence is easy like there should be about 98 amens, but it's okay. I have no voice, and yours is timid too. Time to insert a little dose of realism. Perhaps uh, the party came too soon. Perhaps Nehemiah and the people were tempted to celebrate uh, too soon. Often this is the case that we can sometimes fail to celebrate small victories, but sometimes we pretend that small victories are the end of the battle. That also is a mistake. To say it differently, uh, though the wall is completed, uh, it is not time to jump the eschatological done. Things are good, but all is not entirely well. A small victory in time, like finishing the wall, does not signal the end of history. The battle goes on, the strife continues, and it does so by way of, again, echoing a a familiar name, Tobiah. Uh, He becomes sort of the standout dark horse in the story of Nehemiah and this wall. Uh, His name comes back up in verse 17. As soon as you complete this positive reflection on the finishing of the work, uh, then begins this section from 17 to 19 about Tobiah. Interestingly, three verses, 17 to 19, talk about Tobiah and his ministry of adversity. One verse was spent on the celebration of the wall's completion. There must be something to that. Uh, Tobiah, in some ways, and you know, it's, it's his time for one Lord of the Rings reference. It's been a while. Uh, but in some ways, uh, Nea, Tobiah is to Nehemiah what Gollum is to Mr. Frodo. He just keeps coming back. He won't give up. This is the third time we've had to deal with this character. Uh, he, he is the snake that keeps slithering back into the story. But unlike Gollum... Tobiah actually has social skills and is well-connected. He probably even has all of his teeth. (laughs) He's a thorn in Nehemiah's side. It's curious to me, should be to you, that not only does his name come back, but look how much space is given uh, to Tobiah, to this man who is against Nehemiah, who is against the work of building the wall, who is in many ways against the plan of God, against uh, the people of God. Not only does his name come back, but he comes back quite a lot of detail given to him. Uh, And what should we learn about him? Well, Tobiah is a man of high station. He really is the opposite of Gollum. He is in many ways a virtual equal to Nehemiah. Uh, He sort of weighs the same weight on a social scale. Tobiah is a leader of Israel, unambiguously a man of means, a man of influence, 
We are given careful description of who he's related to because this is part of how he truly is a thorn in Nehemiah's side. Tobiah is connected by family to other people of high station and importance in Israel. His son married the daughter of Meshulam, and apparently that means something. You wouldn't be told that. Nehemiah, as you know, a man of detail, the the CPA of the Old Testament, uh, who wastes neither time nor ink, tells us all about who Tobiah is related to to make the point that Tobiah has connections that are a problem for Nehemiah. He is a high-ranking man, prominent man in Israel, and thus this creates tension for Nehemiah because as the old adage goes, uh, blood sometimes is thicker than what? Water. That is to say, Tobiah's family connections uh, may oust Nehemiah from his non-family connections Sometimes, even it's interesting that this is within Israel, Tobiah's connections are into uh, the hierarchy, if you will, the leadership of Israel. Uh, And sometimes this gets really tricky. Uh, I once knew a pastor of a church that had a multi-generational family in a rather large family in a modest-sized church. And uh, the older man, the grandpa, the pater of the family was wealthy, was influential, and he loved power. He loved power. He he was not only influential, but he had two significant flaws. One was his theology. He was exceedingly liberal. He could not hold to anything uh, remotely reformed and confessional. But the stronger flaw was this. He insisted upon his right to be an elder. And so power play after power play from within the church failed Uh, And then finally, he attempted to use not only his family connections, but even his money against the leaders of the church to power play his way into becoming an elder. It took the help of the presbytery to resolve this messy little political bloodbath. Why? Because blood sometimes is thicker than water. That's the kind of guy that Tobiah is. Tobiah is a man who's not only connected, wealthy, and powerful, the whole point of telling those details is that Tobiah is using all of those as leverage against Nehemiah. The last chapter painted him virtually as an enemy of Nehemiah and the plan of God to rebuild. This particular section, if you read it all by itself in isolation, almost makes him sound like a good guy. Technically speaking, in verses uh, 15, excuse me, 17 through 19, nothing clearly negative is said until you get to the end. Tobiah is popular, he's wealthy, he's connected. People are described as being bound by oath, a very interesting phrase. They are bound by oath to send him letters and even to receive his letters, that is to say, to hear his commands. What does this mean for Nehemiah? It means that Tobiah had spies in Nehemiah's camp. There were people working on the wall receiving letters from Nehemiah, Tobiah, excuse me, sending letters back and forth. Uh, Not only were there spies in the camp, there were moles in the wall reporting Nehemiah's every whisper back to Tobiah. People trusted uh, Tobiah and were entrusting themselves to him. And this is the kind of stuff that Nehemiah had to endure. But what was Tobiah's goal? This is important. Don't lose it. Tobiah had a clear goal. How do you know it so clearly? Because it's stated twice. Stated here at the very end of the chapter, the last sentence tells you what you really need to know about Tobiah and everything that Nehemiah always knew about Tobiah. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. That's who he is, and that's what he does. 
He is not for Nehemiah. He is against Nehemiah. He is not for the wall. He is against the wall. He is a part of that same clear plan to intimidate, to discredit, to tempt. And when you take a few steps back, it makes perfect sense. Uh, This is the plan, the dark plan of Satan exposed in the light of the sun. God has a plan for his people, his purposes, his kingdom, particularly this wall. And Satan has a plan and a people and purposes to thwart. And Satan's plan comes at the people of God in every possible way. If intimidating doesn't work, we'll try discrediting. If discrediting doesn't work, we'll try tempting. If that doesn't work, maybe we'll go back and just try again, continuing to try to make Nehemiah afraid. And not only does he come at the plan of God and the people of God, note particularly that he comes at the leader of God's people, exploiting every possible weakness. Punch them in the nose, and if that doesn't work, stab them in the back. Discourage them, discredit them, taunt them, tempt them, get in their heads. If that won't work, try breaking their hearts. As we said last week, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. This is what we see Tobiah doing. It's why he keeps coming back in the story. He is that snake that will not go away. He is that golem that will not give up. He is, if you will, the mercenary of Satan at work against the people of God. So while the people of God and the kingdom advances, while the city walls are being rebuilt and progress is being made, there is still the serpent in the weeds. Last week we were in our backyard playing with our kids out by a little spice garden that our daughter maintains. And I noticed noticed a creature there that was not a part of our family. It came through a hole in the ground. And it slithered back through this very same hole. And thankfully, it was not venomous. But be with me here. Satan is. Satan is not only there, present and real, he is venomous. This little thing was actually cute, in my esteem. Some of my family may disagree. We actually tried to play with it, hoping it would come back. But this is not the way we ought to think about the enemies of God and the people of God. And the people of God, in a certain sense, if I may say it this way, torturing the metaphor, uh, need on occasion a dose of anti-venom. In this case, realism. Nehemiah has a lot to celebrate. The people of God have a lot to celebrate. The progress line of history moves. But a dose of realism would take a step back and notice the enemies of God have not gone away. The nations may be afraid, but that doesn't mean they've quit. Satan may have like a serpent's head cut off, uh, but nonetheless, there is still some spit left in him. He is crafty, he is clever, he is real, and only a fool pretends that we do not have an enemy. But we also have an advocate, and this is in many ways uh, the beauty and crescendo of the whole story. We have an advocate. It's not found in the strength of Nehemiah. It is not found in the strength of men. It's not even found in the power of the kingdom in a general sense, but in the power of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, in a particular sense. Uh, The one upon whom the good hand of God has always been and whose power it is for his people. If we began the sermon by saying that Rome was not built in the day. We might also say that the kingdom of God spans many ages, but the victory of the kingdom of God actually does come in a day. It comes on the day when Jesus Christ died and rose again. 
We read from larger catechism 53, celebrating the ascension of our Lord. Rome was not built on a day, but the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the city of God was given a sure foundation. The people of God were given a tireless and relentless advocate. The victory of God over Satan, over all the things that oppose his kingdom, was guaranteed and assured. And because God has this guaranteed victory, so also to the people of God, that God is going to finish the good work that he has begun in his people by the very same power that he raised Jesus from the dead. The walls of the city continue to be built. The walls of the church, if you will, continue to be built. The people of the church continue to be built up. God himself, beloved, is going to finish the mission. Even Jesus himself said it in John 17. He'd finish the work that he was sent to do, but all of the mission, including the drawing together of God's people, was not yet fully finished. But God promises that while that work remains, he will indeed finish it. And that takes us to our third and final point. Finish the mission. It's actually the title of a pretty good book on evangelism, the Great Commission. Nehemiah has learned something in this little section that we've looked at today uh, that Christians really do need to learn. And that there is a certain danger in not celebrating, but there is also a certain danger in celebrating too soon or too much. In other words, dropping our guard The wall is completed in Nehemiah 6, but the story is not. The book is not, because the mission is not. A small victory has indeed been won, but it is not yet time to drop our guard. Walls can be built, and walls can be broken down. Nehemiah, in this section, sets up the doors and the gates of the walls. This is the last piece. Accordingly, what you do is kind of like building a house. One of the last things you do is put in the walls and the windows excuse me, the doors and the windows. That's what Nehemiah does at this point. Uh, He sets up doorkeepers and guardians of the gates. It's a very wise move. When you pause and think about it, Israel had enemies on every side. We've already learned that not only are there enemies, the opposing nations from outside, uh, there are strife, there's strife and traitors with inside, foes outside, traitors inside. And so what Nehemiah does here is an excellent move. It's really great. He appoints his brother Hananiah and a man named Hananiah to be over Jerusalem. This is a brilliant move. Why? Uh, Nehemiah recognizes, as the prophet Clint Eastwood reminded us, his own limitations. (laughs) This is called delegation. In many ways, it is a mark of true and helpful leadership because there are two kinds of leader, servant leaders in the world, if you might say it like this and capture this. This could be a helpful point. Uh, There are doers, and then there are delegators. And it's a very important distinction. In my mind, it's often uh, one of the biggest challenges in the life of a church. Most leaders are doers, and very few are delegators. This becomes true of offices like elders and deacons, even ministries like Women in Action. Uh, Those of you involved in this work know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll say it to you like this. A church full of doers will get the job done, and a church that has delegators will keep the jobs done without exhausting its leaders. It's the difference between doers and delegators. Nehemiah rightly realizes that the work has expanded beyond what he can do, and so he farms out, he delegates away some of the work. He can't do everything, no one person can, no one person should, just as with the church, so also among Israel, God had given gifts among men, 
There was a diversity of giftedness within the body at that time, a diversity of kingdom servants able to come alongside Nehemiah, who also gives not simply uh, appointments, but he also gives instruction, a virtual warning. You can sense that Nehemiah recognizes by the good hand of God, the wall has been built, but it's not time to drop our guard. In fact, if anything, he does the opposite and says, now that the wall is built, we need to appoint our guards. We need to raise the bar, pardon the pun. And so he tells them, if you're wondering what that language is there at the end about the sun going up and down and what all that means, he says, don't open the gates until the sun is warm. That is to say, until uh, the morning light has come up and the full light of day is upon the city. And then on the other end of the day, he tells them to close the gates before the sun goes down uh, before night. What is he saying? Don't unlock it until it's safe. And lock it again before it's dark. It's really genius. It's defensive maneuvering. What, what is the last thing most of you do at night before you go to bed? You lock your doors. I have a routine. You have a routine. A path you probably walk where you check every single one to make sure that everything is locked and safe. It is a safety ritual. That is what Nehemiah is given to his brother and this man named Hananiah. And there's uh, multiple reasons why, and they all make sense. We've said uh, there are enemies from outside, and the goal of those doors and those bars is to lock them out. It's the purpose of the wall as a whole. There's strife from within, and the temptation uh, for some sort of uprising to happen, for someone to let people in, uh, a Trojan horse of sorts. And then the end of the section tells us that the city was wide and expansive. There are lots of uh, buildings, if you will, but there are very few people inhabiting them, and there are many homes that had not even been rebuilt. In other words, though the wall is rebuilt, it is vulnerable, and the city inside, the people inside, that which is most precious inside, the site uh, where the temple will be rebuilt, uh, all these things are vulnerable. This invites all kinds of dangers. Uh, there's, a, there's a term that's become all too sadly popular recently, squatters. These doors would keep squatters from coming in, soldiers, those that would seek to undo and harm the people of God. So from squatters to soldiers, these barred city gates would keep danger out and safety in. Nehemiah realizes that not only is the city vulnerable, the people inside it are as well. And I want to kind of land the plane exploring this point as well. Nehemiah recognizing the need to be protective. Nehemiah's willingness, if you will, to acknowledge that in the midst of strength and a victory celebrated, that the people of God are yet vulnerable. So if this in some ways relates to the way that we think about the Christian life, it might ask the question, if I can put it this way, borderline allegory perhaps, uh, but are our gates closed? And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me quote a proverb. Just, you know, the Bible thinks along this exact line, not just me. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The book of Proverbs, the Bible itself, sees what Nehemiah doing here as an illustration of the Christian life. A city that's broken into and left without walls would be very vulnerable, very easy for enemies to sneak in. But the proverb says, a man without self-control is like that city. An individual without self-control is like that 
city. And so it raises, I think, a very fair and practical question, and that is uh, to what extent are we perhaps too proudly and early celebrating, or rather soberly like Nehemiah, recognizing that while God has granted small victories in the progress of the kingdom and the Christian life, uh, perhaps uh, we are the most safe when we realize we still need to lock our doors. We still need to close the gates. We still need to check the windows. We still need to guard our hearts and be mindful. What are those things that might liken us to a city broken into and left without walls? What are those areas of self-control that we are tempted to compromise and fudge upon? What are those things that we're letting our eyes look at or our ears listen to or our hearts desire and crave that expose us to not only the temptations that come from outside the world, but the temptations that rise from within? Because both are real. And a fool would say that we have no adversary. A fool would say there is no reason for me to lock my doors and windows. A fool would say that I am fine without self-control and there is no need to guard my heart. So how indeed, beloved, are we guarding the city walls? The walls of your heart. The walls of your family. The walls of your church. In what ways are we foolishly celebrating too soon and pretending, oh, everything's fine, there's nothing really to worry about? Nehemiah rightly recognizes not only his weakness, but the weakness of the people. And this plan put in place is actually a very old plan. From the very beginning of history, when sin enters the world, God begins this process of guarding doors. One of the first things that he does in reaction to sin is set a guardian in front of a door. The door back into the Garden of Eden. There he sets an an angel. When the temple is built, there also, in front of those doors, guardians are set. You see Nehemiah putting people in place here in chapter 6. But it is not the case also that there is a far greater temple that God is interested in. A city built without walls. A city that resides in the heart of God's people. And even there too, beloved, guardians need to be set. Guarding the doors of our hearts. Why? Because Rome was not built in a day. And the progress of the kingdom of God is slow going. Progress is being made by the grace of God. And God himself has promised that by his grace we are going to finish the mission. Because it is his work. It is he who began it, even within you. It is he who will complete it, even within you. And all that by his grace. Let's pray. great God in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you bestow upon your people to finish the mission. But we recognize, the Lord, that ultimately that is the work that you must do and are pleased to do in our hearts. In some ways, Nehemiah chapter 6 represents sort of the halfway point of the book, this great transition point, where on the one hand, the walls of the city are rebuilt and the doors of the city are shut. And at the same time, we also recognize that the adversary remains within the story. Not simply in Tobiah, in upcoming chapters, the people of God will have their struggles. The enemies of God will have their opportunities. And so we pray, Lord, that like Nehemiah, we recognize that there's a certain strength to be found in acknowledging our weakness. To say that we too must guard the doors of our heart. That we too must be careful of those things that could sneak in and squat sinfully within our hearts and seek to undo us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a people who have wisdom 
Uh, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Help us, O oh Lord, to guard not simply the hearts of our houses, uh, but the, excuse me, the doors of our houses, but the doors of our hearts. Help us to be faithful in those small things that could so often turn into large things, even large sources of temptation and distraction. And we thank you for the example of godliness and leadership that we find in Nehemiah. But how much more do we thank you that we have a great leader, a faithful shepherd and high priest over our souls, even a watchman over the city of God who is Jesus. And so we pray to you in his name. Amen.